Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Bryn Jonathan Butler. And um, I think this will be unique uh, podcast because, Bryn, we never met before, though we've communicated. Um, and I only became familiar with your work this year, but became an enormous fan. You know, I, I get asked to do blurbs all the time, and somehow this book showed up from your editor. Um, and I know your editor a little bit, and he he was like, would you read this book? And I sat down and I felt blown across the room, man. And I started telling everyone I knew about it and um, wrote you online and gave you a blurb and then invited you on because I thought I thought that the book, the name of which is... The Grandmaster. That's not the whole name. <laughs> I get uncomfortable because you don't have control over the title and subtitles. The Grandmaster, uh, the, the match that made chess great again. And uh, I'm not a chess guy. And, and also, right, this is the thing. This is a book ostensibly about, and it is about Magnus Carlsen, um, who at a very young age became not only a grandmaster, but the best chess player in the world and arguably the best chess player of all time. But what Bryn is able to do in this book is bring you into the way Bryn sees the world through um, these other people. And man, you you took incredible risks in, in writing this book as an artist and... Um, I felt inspired and, and awakened as an artist reading it. And and I think for any artist, uh, it has certain similarities to me to the Murakami book, what I talk about when I talk about running, even though you're not at all putting yourself in it that way. But your exploration of obsession um, and of commitment uh, and the discursive way in which you write the book, meaning the way in which you take us into all the different, uh, down, down a many tributaries, to come back to answering this question of the value of this kind of obsession um, inspires me in my own obsession. So thanks for writing the book. Well, thank you. And I appreciate your time with it. Uh, often people who do write blurbs, I wonder if they actually read it, including I've written blurbs as well. And it's a struggle sometimes. Uh, but you were somebody that actually sent me a passage near the end that told me you had read it and you read it closely, which I'm, I'm always very appreciative of people's time and energy. I don't write in an easy way, I think. I'm clumsy. What do you mean by that? Well, I just think the connections that I make sometimes take me a while to sort of unpack what they mean. I feel them, but I think intellectually, I'm, uh, you know, my toolkit wasn't sharpened in school. I sort of had to find my own way. And I think that leads to a certain kind of clumsiness in the abstract way that I make connections. So... As you say, the starting point for me with this was largely obsession. I connected to that with these people, a kind of dark duende about chess that had always, since I was three years old, really caught my attention. What does duende mean? Duende is this Lorca term for that dark energy that all art, especially Spanish art, seems to offer from Goya to bullfighting. Um, like I'm, I've lately been thinking about Goya because of the world. I've been thinking about Goya a lot. Sure. And uh, it's come, he's come up a couple times uh, on the podcast and then thinking about Billions, too. Um, I've been wanting to go, actually, and look at some paintings in person. I haven't. Have you gone and looked at I was just these there. paintings recently? Yeah, I was just at the Prado. Uh, I went to do this long 20,000-word 20, thing. Talk about obsession about a Jack Nicholson movie. So I went to the hotel where he was murdered or committed suicide as a result of exchanging his identity in this obscure Italian film called The Passenger by Michelangelo Antonioni. Of course, yeah. Well, it turns out it's his favorite film. And so just before I went there in Madrid, I went to the Prado and looked at a lot of Goya for sort of inspiration. That's awesome. I mean, there are a couple of Goyas at the Met, aren't there? Yeah, yeah, there's a few. A few at the Met. I mean, that's right. I, I didn't think I would go to Spain, but I thought I would go to... Uh, <laughs> yeah. I could, you know, but I just thought I would, because we're shooting, I would go to the Met and I haven't, but I'm, I'm, this is now the fourth time it's come up recently in my head, so... This weekend, I'm, I'm going to the Met to look at um, a Goya. So, all right, man, I want to go deep with you here. I want to take the same sort of discursive approach that you take. And I almost didn't write down questions because I just wanted to talk, but then I did. Um, it, it, it seems to me that you write about people who are aware of the construct that we all die, but who find some way to set up their own lives to play the conflict out. Hmm. They manufacture an obsession, an opponent, a pursuit that stands in for death itself, it seems. And it leads me to think that's how you view your own life, your own obsession, your own mandate to force yourself into the present as an escape from your brutal past. And 
and awesome in the bad sense, awesome future. And I wonder if you could just talk about that uh, a little bit. I'm, and I'm, I'm not just talking about this book, you know, I'm, I'm also talking about uh, a Cuban, uh, not a Cuban boxer's journey. I'm also talking about, um, what's the full title of the My Decade Boxing book? Oh, uh, The Domino Diaries. Yeah, The Domino Diaries, which is, I'm halfway through it because of the shooting schedule, but the book's incredible also, and really made me sure that I wanted to talk to you. And, um, but I think the thing I'm talking about here, which is people who are aware of their own construct, that this idea that, as one of my favorite songwriters, Slade Cleaves, puts it succinctly uh, uh, um, in his song, uh, Cry, which is everything you love will be taken away. Hmm. And I feel like that's the sub, that is the subtext to like every page that you write. How do we live knowing that? And what can we do to force ourselves to, what can we obsess about? What can we compete at? to force ourselves to forget it for as long as we possibly can. Well, I think, yeah, I think there's that dialectic um, at work of, of how you live and making your life meaningful. Chess is interesting on that level for me because life, like poker, some of your background, obviously popularizing that game, is a game of incomplete information. There's chaos at the heart of it. Chess is a game of complete information, but it's unfathomable. So there's that struggle that these people are in a ship in the middle of the ocean where there's no horizon and they go further and further, <laughs> further away from anywhere where people can help them. I think there's overlap with what we do with writing as well. This for me was a challenge where I didn't know, I was assigned a match that I didn't know anything about, didn't know if it'd be any good. I was given the direction to turn it into something like uh, Norman Mailer had with uh, Muhammad Ali and, and George Foreman. And my first thought was, well, Magnus Carlsen is not Muhammad Ali. Sergei Karyakin is not George Foreman. And this is not Zaire. <laughs> and this is not yet what that became, one of the great matches. So what if this is terrible? What if this is really boring? Or it's going to be whatever it is, but how do I prepare to assemble the way I do? Often what I do is, is almost for every thousand words I write, usually I'll read two or three books. So for something that's going to be like this that ended up being around 72,000 words, I think I ordered 40 books on chess and then probably another 30 on Amazon of all kinds of subject matter to assess. Obsession, artificial intelligence, gender, race. Uh, you know, I haven't read extensively about Alan Turing, but you have to because he was using AI first against chess. So, that, yeah, that that's a good technical answer. But, dude, what I'm talking about is the fact that madness, madness lurks at the end of almost every sentence you write and all the stuff I've read of yours. <laughs> okay, fair. I wasn't trying to be evasive. Yeah, alcoholism is all over my family. Suicide, uh, the first journalist job I ever did, uh, Mike Tyson asked me, who are your other heroes besides me? And I, at, for the first time in my life, recognized they're all suicides. Kind of funny that what seems so obvious, it takes somebody on the outside to point out how obvious it is. I, I wasn't aware of it, but that kind of suicidal impulse has been with me since I was about 10. Um, just as a dark undertow that's there. And yet I think it's also fueled a lot of the beauty that I try to find in people. Yeah, this is what I'm really interested in because I don't know you and I picked up from the hints that you drop in the, in the and I didn't read articles about you either. Yeah. I read these, I read one book twice and the other book I'm halfway through. Uh -huh. But there are these hints, the moment with you and your mom in this book, uh, they're your relatives who've gone mad. Yeah. Uh, and this um, this idea that a kind of temporary salvation is possible through some kind of uh, punishment is not of the self is not exactly right, but it's sort of right. It's some sort of uh, putting yourself through some um, incredibly arduous course seems to be important to you and seems to be what you're fascinated by in other people. Well, I think I think there's this universality to the fact that we all feel miscast in our own lives. That's, that's very present and, and ironic in that we try to hide or we try to be consistent with who our self is in ways that is absurd. And I think that often I've had people kind of say, I don't let a lot of my sense of humor out into my book. It's much drier, I think, when I write because I, I want to take these things seriously and not hurt somebody's feelings by being glib or something. But often my friends will say, you seem to think everything's absurd. I don't think anything's absurd except people. Well, no, yeah, but absurd with a capital A, absurdity is at the, I mean, it's completely in your, of course that's in, sure. in, in your books. Um, uh, uh, people 
you know, when you describe the chess players silently taking the time, rocking back and forth, and uh, the way that they think, the way that they process, the way everybody takes it seriously, the way people willingly go insane chasing it, you're you're dealing with a you're dealing with the absurdity, the construct of this blink of an eye that we're on Earth. It's that Alice in Wonderland thing. Nabokov talked about it that. We're all, in a sense, Alice falling down the rabbit hole, trying to get distracted by the pattern on the wall. And, you know, so whatever that pattern is on the wall that gets you distracted, if it's money, I think that's the most dull, because um, money's just a MacGuffin in people's lives, right? It's never interesting in itself. Um, but whatever it is, I'm on board. And if it leads you towards excellence, I'm thrilled, whatever it is, I want to learn. But I'm, I'm like, I like some of this latter Bourdain stuff has affected me a lot. I love how he says, I'm not a journalist, I'm a student. And that's very much, and speaking of Goya, I mean, at the end of his life, what does he write on one of his paintings? I'm still learning. Those are the people I'm a sucker for. Well, because it seems a kind of, um, whatever the opposite of ennui is, it seems like is the thing you're chasing. Feelings, you know. Joie de vivre maybe, but it's salvation. There's a kind of, because you say in both of these books, you talk about moments of personal salvation. You, you, in fact, say getting this assignment to write the chess book was a kind of salvation, that you were on the edge. You talk about boxing being a salvation. Then you talk about in moments in, in Cuba, different things being a salvation. And it seems that your narrative, uh, uh, so taken at surface level, is like, uh, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm running as close to the line as possible. I could fall off this cliff at any moment. But then taken sort of uh, met as, as slightly at a, a move as, as metaphor, it seems that you're saying the feeling of desperation uh, encroaches upon me and I have to fight it and I have to find things to grab onto. To no question. Out. Well, this is funny because the piece I was working on uh, over the summer about going to Spain and and this Jack Nicholson film, The Passenger, it was the first time I remembered how I began writing essentially as a posthumous career. Because technically, I committed suicide on February the 7th, 2007, because I was talking to a friend after nine years of not being able to publish anything. And he said, hey, I've got a friend at art school who's got a new magazine, you should submit something. And I was so down. I said, the only way they'd publish anything is if you told them I killed myself. And he said, that's a really good idea. And he submitted it. And they took it. So for the first time of nine years of saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, please listen to me, nothing works. And the moment I say, I'm not here, they go, off we go. And that was the beginning for you. That was the first thing I ever had published. Here's the thing, I talk about the New Yorker magazine all the time in my regular life. So to get to talk about it on here and tell you why it's great is a privilege, actually. Look, we're talking about the best writers on earth who write for magazines and uh, they write for the New Yorker. I mean, we're talking about, you know, Helen Rosner, an incredible James Beard award-winning food writer and a pal of mine, Ronan Farrow, obviously turned the world upside down. There's also, the New Yorker is a place where they publish the best short stories first, the, the best poetry, and where they hold power accountable. Uh, it's also funny and gosh, you know, I, I have this feeling as I'm talking about The New Yorker that uh, I'm not doing it justice. I mean, this is quite simply the gold standard of magazines, a magazine I read every week and have for years and years. Um, people often ask me, uh, how come it seems that I'm so aware of so many things going on in the world? And, and I do think one of the main reasons is that I'm a regular reader of The New Yorker. And you can be too. And uh, you get access to their digital archives if you subscribe. So don't wait. Go to newyorker.com slash moment. Listeners of the podcast save 50% when they enter the code moment. With the special offer, you'll receive 12 issues for just $6, plus get an exclusive New Yorker tote bag. You can choose between print, digital, or combo subscription. Subscribe to the New Yorker and read something that means something. It's 12 issues for 6 bucks and a free tote bag when you go to newyorker.com slash moment. Talk a little bit about your childhood, and, I, and, and don't be afraid to, to go a while. Like... You know, uh, because I think that the, one of the things that inspires me about the stuff I picked up from these books about you is, you know, this none of this came easy to you. It was just all hard won, and and you should be a casualty in, in many ways. And so, 
could you just talk about how you were raised, where you were raised, economic circumstance, how you found fighting? Take us to that moment in 2007 when you finally um, solved it. And, and as I said, don't worry about talking. Well, it's a lot of it's a lot of contrast because I mean, there's a degree of privilege. I mean, my father grew up with nothing. His dad was a, a lumberjack who had his leg crushed by a tree, and a tree killed his kid, fell on his head. My uncle. So it was tough circumstances, uh, raising a large family during the depression. My grand, my father came right after that in 1948, uh, but he was allowed through his dad's efforts to, to go to university. And so all, all of his siblings were very educated. He became child protection lawyer, opened his own firm, couldn't play well with others in Vancouver, looked after a third of the city's at-risk kids. That was a big part of his existence, taking home a lot of work with him, which very quickly led to alcoholism, but alcoholism in a very high functioning way. So again, a lot of ambiguity seems to permeate my childhood. You talk in the books though about that, that alcoholism was uh, for you ever present and was some sort of a ticking clock, even though it didn't manifest in uh, the, the, the ways we traditionally think of it, that, that you say you had an awareness of its cost on him and, and what that would mean for you at an early age. Yeah, well, alcoholism has always been for me not a question of why do people drink, but why do people not drink? I mean, if you're a sensitive person who's got half a brain and you look at the world we've got, how are you not a complete alcoholic, especially if you have a good memory? You know, that's an, like they, they said with Jack Kerouac, the greatest tragedy in the world was the fact that you remembered everything. So with, with my father, uh, I was part of that ritual to go to the liquor store. Well, actually, we go to the fruit store and collect fruit. And he'd say, just give me a second. You pay at the cash register. Here's 20 bucks. And he'd go next door and get the cigarettes and get, get the alcohol and come back and drop the brown bag into the plastic bag. So it was interesting to me that we didn't openly talk about it, but the secret was completely known. So it was an interesting dynamic. And so I always look at it as a bit like The Shining. If you look at The Shining of what the horror is, what I always saw it as, because I was about the same age as Danny the first time I saw that film, was the parental breakdown, how they're being cleaved apart, how gradual the paces of that film. It's very much echoed what I felt like my parents separating, which happened when I was six. And the way my mother's moving into spirituality was very much the way my father was moving into alcoholism um, for, I think, similar reasons, to cope. And to cope with loss also, right? To cope with loss, yeah. My mother lost a, a child to crib death and uh, my father's family was defined by the loss of his brother. So, you know, and every family has these things. I mean, where where isn't alcoholism or bereavement? And so I didn't see anything exceptional about my family's circumstances, but there was, there was a complete openness about a lot of things and then an open denial about other things, which The Shining, as I look back on why that movie is so important to me, it's denial that seems to be the real horror that Kubrick is really talking about. The detritus of the genocide of the Indians, the openness of Jack Nicholson to be racist, talking about the white man's burden, or the way the N-word is used in that in such a casual way, and yet, quote, all the best people stay here. That was very much how dark things seemed to be in my house, that everybody saw themselves as very emotionally literate, but it only gave them license to hide bigger things. And I find a lot of people are, who see themselves as honest do that. They, they, they're honest about something that seems kind of shocking, but it's always to cover a bigger thing. Sure, that's a great reportorial eye, and I think that, that you have, and I think that that's true. But when your dad left, what were the financial ramifications for you and your mother? He was ravaged. I mean, well, my, he always looked after my mother, but the real estate market hit Vancouver at that time. Now it's sky high. I think the median income in Vancouver is beneath uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and yet houses the house my mother still rents is probably worth two and a half million. She still rents it. You know, and my father was decimated financially, never got out from under. Um, bad timing, you know, just bad timing. And then it was you and your mom. Yeah. And your mom, who was, as anyone who'd lost a child, uh, it seems to me, never got over it. I think she's a big spiritual guru out there. But I mean, she also got therapy from Eckhart Tolle from his apartment. And then pretty soon after, he's on Oprah. <laughs> so he, she was very much part of that ethos and that community where, you know, Eckhart Tolle, I remember her talking about going to visit him and you just think, f from my mind, the lawyer son's part of my mind, who are these fucking people? Sure. But some of them launch. But what were the consequences to you? How did you have to 
sort of mold yourself to them or how did you react to all that? Isolation, a lot of isolation, which is, you know, I think the artist part of you comes out for me. It, I think it was beginning there, which essentially put some blood in the water for somebody out there to sort of uh, attack, which led to a bullying thing, which I think I made very appealing from my identity. Because I think when I look back on it, you mean you becoming bullied, you getting bullied? An incident, an incident where, I mean, yeah. if you can imagine your your worst moment in your life, it doesn't always happen in front of everybody you know. It, you're sheltered a little bit. Mine was very public in front of every person. So my whole identity I mean, got- was like out of the Truffaut movie. Yeah, it, well, yeah, that's, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I just was lured out to something and everybody I knew pounced into a swarming incident. And- I wasn't able to leave my front door for three years. And then suddenly I hear Mike Tyson talk about bullying on television. And I thought, oh my God, it's the first time I've ever heard an adult speak about this in a way that resonates with me. Yeah, you say in the book, in the other book, that Tyson saved your life. Absolutely. So talk about that. Well, I wrote him- Because you, you really say you didn't leave in three years. Talk about where you were though. What do you mean he saved your life? We'll get to him, to you interacting with Tyson and you going on a box, but- when you say stayed home for three years, um, because you've now become, a, or this book's going to do well for you, it's already sort of changed things in a certain way. You mm -hmm. can tell by the way people are reacting to the book. I, I just want to draw how much of a loser you felt like. Which is suicidal. Just, just, right. your, just no way, there was no escape. There's no escape. I mean, because you felt humiliated and hurt, and also you didn't know how to defend yourself. I was the smallest kid, not just in my own year at school, but the year before me. So I felt incredibly vulnerable. Um, and then subsequent years, I grew four inches and 25 pounds a year to get to 5'10 and 200 pounds. So things changed dramatically. But you never lose that part of you <laughs> from when you're small, that that's your identity. Um, but again, we're encompassing two sides of things, which I think repertorially is very useful. And I, to protect myself, was also using a lot of emotional bullying techniques. I couldn't physically do it, but my thought is if I can expose the vulnerability of other people. Uh, somebody, so you would do that at school? All the time. I had three people leave school because of uh, finding nicknames for people where people went, oh my God, that's so attractive. And they would pounce on them. As long as they pounced on them and didn't pounce on me, I was safe. Right, but that leads to a kind of self-loathing too. Right? Absolutely. No, I mean, I felt when you're in survival mode, the attitude is everybody's expendable because it's better than them going after me. And I thought everybody could see, uh, you know, decode what were my most, I felt vulnerable to everybody. So I sought to make everybody feel the exact same way. Yeah, as many of us do. And it's a tough spot. I mean, it's very hard to know what to do when you're 13. Yeah, and I and I think also, you know, I'm very interested in the biographies of the parents of writers and artists that I like. I want to know what their parents did to get a sense of how their mind, the cast of mind is shaped. And frequently it's always lawyers and doctors, but occasionally you get scientists. And that's a very interesting cast of mind to explore, constructing, telling a story, all that architecture. For me, you have like a gypsy tarot card reading, Hungarian accent, crystal ball gazing, <laughs> like that kind of reading people in that way. I mean, that's she still does it to this day, 35 years of, of what she calls reading, spiritual healing seminars and that sort of thing. And then the lawyer. And I think I try to bring that when I meet people to interview them and get a sense of them. I have a very strong first impression of both who they want to present themselves to be and who they're hiding. Well, sure. As I often say, the whole battle in this life is becoming comfortable enough in your skin that those things are synthesized. It's, yeah. it's the entire pursuit. Um, sure. For me, anyway, is uh, because if if the goal is to be good to those you love, the, really the only way to do that is to find uh, comfort in yourself. Absolutely. Uh, where where there's little distance between how you present and who, and who you are, so that there's not this kind of bullshit or pro protectionism that gets in the way. Yeah. And I think you know I'm older than you, and and it if you're aware of this and you you try to work towards it and. And, and, and horribly enough, I, I think um, it, it ought not be the case, but I think actually have, uh, success makes it, can make it harder for some people. But for me, being able to get validation as an artist helped with that a lot. Sure. Um, 
with that synthesis uh, as you start to understand what your reasons are for continuing to do it when ambition's not the driver. Yeah, I don't know that ambition was a driver for me because I had so much failure for nine years. But I mean, another thing that I, I kind of recognized was that, you know, losers are the ones who are, you know, have this inter internality. You know, like Trump is a good example of this because there's such a shallowness to his ambition. It's just win, win, win. But people that I've come close to, I've ghostwritten for Lance Armstrong and it was a very similar thing. There's no self-awareness in winning at all. So I think it's very much this childish um, not just childish, but maybe infantile desire to control everything. Well, ambition is a very thin, it's a thin gruel um, of a motivation. Yeah. In, in, in the end, but that takes time to realize. Well, and most of these artists also, when you look at look at where what motivated them, like the ones that didn't have ambition as the big driver, but they worked harder than ambitious people. I mean, look at Chekhov, for example. His name was synonymous in Russia. If you needed money, if you needed healthcare, because he was a doctor by trade, if you yeah. needed assistance of any kind, or if you wanted to have somebody really fun to drink with, the name was the same. It was Chekhov. You'd seek him out. People would come from hundreds of miles away to seek help. And all you had to say was, where is this guy to find him? But it's complicated. I mean, this is a complicated question. And it goes to the heart of a lot of what you write about, right? Which is uh, the cost of all this stuff. And then, the, you know, the price of it. And, and also the rewards, though. Like, I mean, Hemingway clearly... Now, Hemingway, who's a suicide. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the serving of that ambition in the end was... A thin gruel for him too, but ambition was undoubtedly a huge part of the driver for Hemingway. No question. The desire to be the best writer, the desire to know. Now it wasn't an ambition that, although he wanted other people's um, approval, but the driver for him was the ambition to know himself that he was the world's best writer. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned earlier, competing against dead people, not just the living. Yeah, and none of that interested me with him, although I applaud if you're going to be the most competitive person on the planet, competing against the best. That takes some balls to, to do. He's not competing against people. You know, it's not trophy hunting in the sense of the animal has no chance. He really wanted to go out there. If he's going to go to Spain, he's going to write about a subject he has no business writing about with bullfighting. And he's going to learn the language and meet all the experts. If he's going to do hunting, he's going to meet Blixen's husband, the, the greatest white hunter, and, and that sort of thing. You know, and, and he, I understand what he represents with so much toxic masculinity right now. He seems to be so emblematic of that. But that side of him never really interested me. It was more the impact of, uh, you know, a country like Cuba with him, which figured prominently for my 20s, was how does he get a pass for aligning himself with a country that is diametrically opposed to ours? And he says, I'm, I, I'm giving the Pulitzer Prize and the Nobel Prize to the Cuban people. His great novel, you know, The Old Man in the Sea, that was his comeback novel, that's Cuba to a T. Yeah, he's not writing about the revolution in his backyard, but he's writing about this very humble person that's like 15 miles outside of Havana, fishing in the way they've been fishing for hundreds of years, catches the biggest fish that's ever been caught. And in the end, it gets eaten away by sharks. I mean, that is, to me, the revolution to a T. Is, is, it, is it worth it to have a failed, noble ambition? Yeah, well, what's fascinating about the chess book is that in many endeavors, in many sports, even in boxing, right? The Rocky story is about succeeding in failure or in a non-victory. Um, and we celebrate, you know, one of the great things about UFC to me is that because of how hard it is and because of the random in it, even the best lose, mm. uh, which is different than the way we've always thought about boxing, right? Which sure. is the unblemished record in boxing is this thing that is... Um, really celebrated it's the marciano th thing and sugar ray leonard for such a long time it's all that stuff sure. um in ufc they all lose sometimes but in your chess book the idea of one bad loss it feels like can just destroy someone and you you really talk about the ways in which even one wrong move can cause someone years of distress no question what about that spoke to you personally because you spent a lot of time on that right there are all these ways to approach the story of magnus winning mm. and becoming the greatest chess player ever and 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 what you chose to focus a lot of the book on was 
that everyone engaged in that level of chess understands there's either victory or madness. Well, I think it's, I think a big part of that, I mean, for one thing, why don't Americans like chess anymore? Well, I don't think America takes anything seriously that you can't make a buck from. And it's a really interesting insight into chess, I think, that capitalism, is there anything else that you could present me with that's been around for 1,500 years <coughs> and has 600 million people doing it and nobody can make a dollar off it? Oh, ping pong. Ping, but I'm sure the, the makers of ping pong make some money. <laughs> like of the paddles or the- In China and the, the world, <laughs> some people make money. But, but with chess, that's not, that's not the case. And you think of- all these grandmasters, these extraordinary players. Everybody knows what a grandmaster is. Well, you you sound special. You must be like a, a knight from the time of King Arthur or something. Well, there's 1,600 of them. So tell me how many people are in your business with writing TV who are 1,600th in the world. How are they doing financially? How's the 1,600th tennis player in the world doing? So in chess, where only about 30 people can make a living out of 600 million, what are the, the kind of applicable skills that you learn from dedicating your entire life, giving your childhood to something, we still don't know after 1,500 years. Magnus Carlsen is not a certified genius at anything else. Bobby Fischer said, I am not a chess genius. I'm a genius who happens to play chess. But there's nothing, there's nothing else that he did where he seems even remotely competent at anywhere in his life because he spent every waking hour since he was six years old playing chess. Yeah, but Fisher also had uh, you know, mental, mental illness. And now you talk about, how, this is why I'm talking about madness. But Brandon, as an artist, what I'm really interested in is uh, the hold that this has on you. Because you know you tell the story of becoming a boxer when you were 16 and, and um, how when you, when you hit somebody, uh, the first really great punch you landed, which was on uh, someone you had regard for, mm -hmm. uh, how it made you a little bit sick. It didn't make you give up boxing, but it made you know you weren't a boxer. Yep. Uh, which, and so then your pursuit from that moment on, which defined a lot of your 20s, was sort of a mad pursuit because you, somewhere inside you secretly you knew you didn't actually want to get in a ring and hurt anybody. Yeah. I'm and there's a duality that was at play in you there a need to engage in this punishing thing with the knowledge that you were kind of more interested in dealing with what it felt like to get hit than in hitting. And I, and I see a similarity in, your, in the, what the chess players go through. Well, I think, I think we're all, boxing for me was the clearest way that I understood to reveal who I was because it was my biggest fear. My biggest fear was that as, as had happened, that physical violence exposed my cowardice as a defining trait of who I am and my personality. And what Mike Tyson showed me was that he felt that he was a bigger coward than I felt about myself. And I thought I was a world-class coward. But if he was able to transform cowardice into and weaponize it and use it as fuel for the things that he wanted in positive ways with his life, I thought, well, if cowardice is fuel... I can take on some other things. And I think that's the big problem with chess. I think that's why it has a, a sharper edge than some of these other forms of obsession is you and I can talk, we can write, we can help other people with you know writing them a script. We can talk as we're doing this. We can do radio, we can move it into film. There's a lot of crossover with, with having a facility with words or with observing people, that sort of thing. With chess, it's not clear what they're good at other than chess. And so I think that that, even more so than writers, which I think is an ethos that's defined largely by a personality type that's incredibly arrogant and incredibly insecure, which is a tough fucking thing to be around. Chess players, it's to the nth degree of that. Uh, and I think them dealing with that in ways that are not as communicable as it is for writers to you know, have writers groups and all these other ways to palliate loneliness and that sort of thing. Chess, chess people don't have it. I think there's such a sadism about it. Whereas I think with writer, writing, there's more of a support network. But with chess, I just found that, um, like, I mean, I was teasing, but I don't even know if I was joking that I felt like it would be easier to meet Pope Francis and have like an interview with him than Magnus Carlsen. And I can't believe, given the, the financial ecosystem of chess, why I was like, I'm here from Simon & Schuster to do nothing but publicize you to an audience that you aren't able to tap into. Wouldn't you want to give me 10 minutes or 20 minutes sort of thing? And I was a leper there, you know, largely 
uh, and I was treated with such contempt, the organizer criticizing my clothing. And, you know, it felt to me at this, like this intersection between like a, a Russian Pl Plutarch, um, oligarch rather, having an illegal art show with many times I've gone to Atlantic City for fights and you come back at three o'clock in the morning at the Greyhound bus station surrounded by hopeless gamblers that have lost everything. It was that mix at, at the chess world championships. <laughs> and, and I was just thinking like, there's so many things about this in terms of the people that I'm seeing that I do see myself in, in giving yourself to a pursuit that makes absolutely no sense, which is what writing felt like to me. Why? Why did writing feel that way to you? Because I wrote a million words before I got a dollar from it. And every person I know who cared about me just said, you're delusional. How? So you were, how? Talk about that time, please. Like, so where were you living? I was in Vancouver and- uh, what? How were you supporting yourself? Uh, I, I worked a number of jobs. I, I worked as a bouncer for a little while, uh, collected garbage for a while. Um, I worked for my dad's law firm, just just doing menial tasks and that kind of thing. Uh, he definitely was trying to help me with writing. How old were you? Well, I mean, I dropped out of high school just, bef just before the end of senior year. Why? I was a horrible student. Uh, Did anyone say it tell you you were smart? Well, they thought I was retarded and they gave some standardized tests which showed I was not retarded. And then it became- They used the word retarded? Yeah, at the time. Sick. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I apologize. By the way, I apologize to anybody for us using that word if it uh, if it hurts you and has been used against you. And I'm or not someone using you love as a weapon. I I know you're not. I, they they use that word about you, and I think so. It's fair game to use it here now uh, because they used it. <laughs> the uh, school counselor uh, about yeah. you, and then it turned out you were very smart when you took the test. Well, I'm from a testing standpoint. I'm good at the test that they gave me. I don't know if I'm good at any other test. That's fine. Let's not let's not <laughs> let's not uh, die in a, some false humility. What, what it showed you was that you were by those standards smart, and it showed them. But how did they react to that? Then the disparity between what the work you were producing and your capability. Well, then it was my fault. It was. They it, said it was your fault. Well, it was just not my hardware that was deficient. It was my personality and my character, and and I think and I'm not being fal falsely humble. I. I think you gain a huge advantage if your dad has jumped through the hoops to become a lawyer. Nobody can completely call you an idiot and be certain that you're an idiot. Sure. And no, I mean, I talk about this with, with my kids. Listeners to the show know that uh, my son is, uh, both my kids are good writers and that my son is an academic, you know, academic standout. But he would be the first person to say like, well, I grew up with two writers as parents, both of whom have graduate degrees. Yeah. I mean, this is what Sammy would say. Anna is dyslexic. And so she, for her, it was very hard. The fact that she's a published writer at a young age, is just a testament to this incredible work ethic that she has and how smart she is. Um, but, uh, but, but Sammy would say, who has no learning dis disabilities at all, um, he would say, well, if I didn't find a way to do well with the background that I had, people around me who valued uh, writing, reading, scholastic achievement. Mm. So yes, of course it's easier. And I think all of us have to remember how much harder it is for anybody from a different circumstance. Uh, and and I, I love the fact that both of my kids constantly talk about how these advantage, you know, the, the sort of advantages that were out there for them. But, but so all that said, yes, you were, had a lawyer for a father, so you understood certain things and, um, well, no, I don't mean that. I mean in the sense that when your dad has done that, and my dad was a pretty accomplished writer. He had a play producer when he was 18. He was a theater critic through university and film critic. Um, you know, he was writing all the time. He just couldn't finish anything after somebody at university said he was the most talented writer they'd seen in 30 years. And that stifled him for the rest of his life. He became Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Right. Endlessly working on something that was never finished. So the worst thing you could say Brutal. to him is, how's it going? Are you, are you near the end? Uh, that curse of perfectionism is the worst. But what it gives you when you know your parents have done some things that you didn't earn in, intellectually, like have gone through some of the, the, the gauntlet, is it gives you a sense of a passport to have ambition for things that you wouldn't have if your dad would be a janitor or, some, or a taxi driver, perhaps. Is, or at least I wouldn't have the gumption to think. I could try and do a novel. I could try and do something that... I have no, you know, art, art is this great redeemer, right? Yes, um, this is the amazing thing. I mean, Lincoln didn't go to law school and he still became a lawyer. Well, but you I can't had this do question written down and I'll prove it to you. I mean, you, you just mentioned the novel thing because uh, as I was reading 
the boxing book um, and I'm thinking about you, uh, I thought of that Mamet line where his dad, you know, Mamet's playing poker and now he's in his 40s or something and his dad says to him, oh, you're still using cards. Meaning, uh, how can you still think that the way to compete is through uh, and find out who you are and test your own metal is through uh, this card game? Uh, mm. uh, uh, why aren't you past it yet? Yeah. And as I was reading your stuff, and I and I would say, you know, Pam Houston says, um, for her, the line at memoir versus fiction is eighty three percent true. <laughs> I like that. How definite it is? Yeah. And. Um, <laughs> But reading your books, it's clear to me, and I think that there were the there's less memoir in the chess book than there is in the Cuban oh, yeah. Cuba book. But it was clear to me um, that there were whole paragraphs people in Cuba said to you that you were combining paragraphs, you were making the stories better, you were writing fiction uh, to make a very true points. It was clear that there was a lot of fiction in there, and I I was I had this distinct sense that part of what you're writing about when you write about these people is your own question about eventually writing, committing to becoming an, to being a novelist. Mm -hmm. And I, and you don't say that in there, but it's what I feel strongly. And I, Oh yeah. So I wanted to ask you how you're doing wrestling with that. Are you working on a novel? Well, I think I've, I've finished three novels that are all unpublished. But this was a long time ago. Or yeah. Well, I think, I think they're out. I mean, I think for me, what, what, what became my obsession was the process of, for no good reason, I did a marathon when I was 14. And I ended, at that time, it wasn't this rite of passage for a group of people that seems to, like, because there's huge attendance now. At that time, I, I think I was the youngest person who did it that year, whatever it was, 90, 93. And I had only run, because I was doing it for boxing, I was running every morning at four o'clock in the morning, like Mike Tyson. I was just en endlessly imitating everything he was doing. Well, I thought, well, what's 26.2 miles if you can do five miles five days a week? Nothing, no difference. Just go a little slower, pace yourself. Not true. And once you get to nine miles and you, your whole body is in this new place of breaking down, what I discovered was I had to lie to myself probably 15,000 times to get to that finish line. And I think it's, a, it's the best training. I, it was my university to write a book, to finish a book is you don't, it's not your virtue that allows you to sail to someplace where you don't know where the hell you're going. It's, it's really the ability to con yourself in all, in becoming uh, able to con yourself thousands of different ways to keep going and, and convince yourself that maybe tomorrow's gonna be better. Maybe you're gonna have a good day, but it's definitely, you feel like you're sailing a ship where the sail is whole, whole ridden and you just have to paddle and paddle and paddle. Well, as soon as I just transferred that same ethic to writing, I think it was the same impulse that's with me today. You know, there's always the doubt that you're going to be stranded, that there's no shore you're going to arrive at. But when you get there, just like that, I've never tasted anything better in my life than the Slurpee I had at the end of that marathon. Sure. That makes complete sense to me. Also, this idea of lying to yourself goes back to the first question I asked you about your fascination in a way with this construct that... Uh, we live as though we're not going to die, but we all know we're going to die. I mean, that's the same, this is the same marathon, right? I think it's all lies. I think language is created not to communicate the truth, but to, to deceive. I mean, that's why we, ha I mean, we, we happen to be endowed with Shakespeare in our language, but what does it allow us to do? To be full of shit in ways that other languages are so much more direct. I mean, that's why Spanish is such a charming language. It's and, and I guess chess and, and, and in the ring, it's hard to be, you will be exposed if you're full of shit. And I'm wondering if that's part of- That is a wonderful point, that chess, you can't be full of shit. I forget, I think it was Lasker who said, uh, chess does not allow hypocrisy. And there's a beauty and a torture to being confined to this prison cell of you know exactly where you stand at every moment. That's true, boxing too. And and that seems yes, it's clearly true of boxing. Um, and it's it's one of the things that made me stop watching boxing was when I realized that the organizing bodies were trying to take that away. Mm -hmm. The organizing bodies, through their lies and deception and bribery, were, were the thing that you most valued about boxing was seeing this honest exchange. Yeah, and they and then they took that they stole that from the boxers. I I totally agree, and I just think with chess, I think that that's a big part of it. You were asking before about. Why can't they deal with this madness that seems to be lingering that captures the imagination of, of outsiders and laymans with chess? But I think just a big part of it is they just the sadism that I, I don't feel that people appreciate if you give your whole life 
and 16 hours a day, which composers can't do. Like a lot of these guys get compared to compo- composers. I think that's totally wrong thinking. They're much more in the vein of like a Glenn Gould. Well, you're players. Players. Yeah. Piano players, pianists. Players. I've, I've known them. I knew one. All that was in his apartment was piano and a mattress on the floor. Right. That was, and it wasn't a romantic affect. Literally, that's just how he had to order his life. Bobby Fischer, when he was given a hotel in Iceland, he was given the penthouse suite. And the first thing he said is, why are you giving this to me? I don't need a view because it's not his life. His view is the board. And that's a perfect view. And some of the people I interviewed for this, I tried to be really eclectic in the people I brought in for different voices, different angles on chess that I hadn't heard discuss it. Much more articulate people than I am, which was which was lovely to listen to and offer. Um, but all of them came to the same conclusion that knew anything about somebody that had given their life to the game is that this is dangerous. This is really, really dangerous. And I feel that way about writing, that it's a sickness that we have. If I don't write, I want to kill myself in three days. But so I just accept there's like a, a leaking component to who I am and I need to fill it with some, with stuff that's positive. But are, are you willing to risk the novel thing again? Well, I, yes, but I, I you know, I want to, I also just, this gave me a bit of room financially for the first time in my life. And I, if I can get more room, uh, yeah, I think the novel is always what I've admired the most because I think it, that sadness and that emptiness that was there, and you're talking about dealing with death and stuff, the novel is, nothing has seemed more vibrant to me than be entering into those worlds. Yeah, and, and there's a, there is some safety in getting to get all of your creative point of view out in these nonfiction works. But I, reading them, I get the sense that what's, well, it's exactly as you said, Brent, uh, you're willing to show us this to hide that. You know, and, and I think about a lot with, when I was in Spain, I got the news that Bourdain had committed suicide. And I always thought it was funny, his origin story. And as I mentioned to you, I began as a suicide <laughs> to get published. And I thought his origin story makes absolutely no sense. Discovered on the slush pile of the New Yorker and his mom was nagging him to get in there. Do you know another person who's been discovered in the slush pile of the New Yorker? I've never heard of it. I think Mark Helperin sent something in from when he was a college student and they took it. So that's two. I think that's the story with Mark. But he leaves out that the dad worked at Columbia Records and went to Yale, that his mom worked at the New York Times, that he went to Vassar. He ends up writing 13 books. It's this weird happy-go-lucky story where I'm just thinking he is using that, you know, he wrote 13 books. He's creating this beginning story in well, it. we all, so, yes, you're talking about self-mythologizing. Right. Um, as a way not to fool others, but to fool yourself. Well, and, and, and he was very upfront about the great people that inspired him. He said, I was this romantic, Byronic figure who was hyper-violent. My biggest aspiration was to become a drug addict and stuff. And I'm not, I'm not trying to untangle <laughs> the veracity of what he's saying. I just, I'm saying, I love these kind of origin stories. Well, it's the Murakami story that is forever inspiring mm. to me, right? That's one of my great obsessions is Murakami. And this idea that he wasn't a novelist, had never thought about being a novelist, had never written anything. And he's sitting in a ballpark in Japan. And the moment someone hits a ball, he realizes, I want to be a novelist. And he goes and writes this book, makes one copy of it, sends his only copy, doesn't keep even a, a copy of it himself, sends his only copy out to this contest and a year later he finds that he wins and then he becomes the world's best-selling novelist. No part of that actually feels like it can possibly be true, but I, I think it, I desperately need it to be true somehow. Well, there are a lot of other examples. I mean, uh, you know, Fitzgerald's first ambition was to make, to find glory as a football player, too small. So he went to the army while well, World War I was over. So writing will be the third one. And so your own is that you you wrote all these words and nothing happened. So what finally, how, so you, you get the art thing, but so you drop out of school, you drop out of high school and what are you, and you're taking, doing these jobs and you're just, what are you working on the first novel? Yeah, I worked on the first novel. I finished it when I was 20, wrote another one. Well, and so I send it off. I spend $2,000. My dad helped me with money too, to send it off to a million places and nothing but rejections. And the last rejection was from a major publisher that said, and it was handwritten, which is an odd thing because none of these rejections are handwritten. They're so formulaic. Uh, it said, you, you, my young friend, are. this is the wrong book, but you're in the right profession. I look forward to the next. 
submission. That's great. And that was great on the one hand, because I thought maybe maybe I have a visa. I don't yet have a passport, but I have a visa. Uh, but I don't know if I have another one in me, because this took a lot, and I have no money, and I have nothing to show for it, and now I'm a little older, and, and a lot of people are getting on me. You need to be serious. You need to get a GED and go back to university and and all of that, those sort of things. But I was very stubborn, and I just knew I wasn't, I was going to have a really bad end if things didn't work, which I think also propelled and offered a certain kind of vitality to what I was doing. As my thought was, in a competitive male sort of way, they don't have to work as hard at trying to make this be as good as I want it to be because they have other options. And that's a very like Mike Tyson idea. But you wanted to have no options. I mean, that's why your, yeah. your self-mythology is this idea that your end was always around the corner. I mean, you even say at the beginning of the chess book, you felt like this was the last, like you you were you were at the end of your rope. Well, I mean, the, the New York Times has a profile on me to say like, this guy's on Medicaid and he wouldn't have it any other way. And I was like, I'd rather have it another way. I, well, how? Well, how would you rather have it? I would rather have a little security, you know, like like this offered me two years where I didn't have to worry about next month's rent, I, you know, and that was profound, you know, and and I'm just aware that timing is such a big deal with this. I don't think I'm in the wrong profession and I don't think I'm untalented, but I also where you have to meet the right people. And I've always felt a bit like a strange flavor of ice cream for people. The people that really like a strange flavor of ice cream, that's their go-to. But for everybody else, it tastes a little weird at first. It it's, it's, you know, like with this, this was a very much an outsider looking into something and insider's attitude is why should this tourist be allowed to write about it? And I didn't, I wanted to respect them, but also respect an audience that doesn't know and anything about And you clearly do in the book. You might not know what to look at me at first because I have a beard, but I do shave. Uh, because I shave the part above and below my beard, but also at times I've had a goatee, at times I've been clean shaven. And one thing is true, I always use Gillette razors and blades. Uh, I love the Gillette Fusion razor. It works perfectly. Uh, it doesn't hurt my skin. In fact, uh, it uh, does a great job and that's why I haven't changed for a long time. And here's the great news, now, you can get Gillette quality blades at the best value and convenience with Gillette On Demand. With Gillette On Demand, you can get blades delivered directly to your door. It's a simple way to subscribe and know what you're getting and be happy with what shows up at the door. Subscribe to Gillette On Demand today and get 50% off your first order with special offer code the moment 50 at checkout. Enjoy free shipping and every fourth order free with subscription. Visit Gillette online at GilletteOnDemand.com. Use the moment 50 for 50% off your first order. Do it. One, one thing you talk about a lot, uh, I've noticed, is you seem really animated by family connections, hidden family shame, hidden family pride. By sacrifice, one family member might make for another. That shows up a lot in, yep. in your work. So talk about how that helps you find an angle of approach to your writing. But also, it occurs to me, you take pains, and I've always noticed this about Tyson, uh, the thing you just said about not knowing that Magnus Carlsen uh, is necessarily a genius in anything else. One thing that you make clear and that I, I know is true is that Tyson uh, raised an entirely different circumstance, raised with two loving parents, could have been a doctor. He's really brilliant in a couple of areas. Yeah, other than that, boxing. When, when you just talk about um, capacity for like memory, synthesizing thought, uh, can you talk a little bit about sort of when you look at Magnus's capacity, when we're talking about wattage and capacity, what hits you about about Tyson that people don't, don't realize? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, anybody that really has spent time with him talking to him, they always remark on how intelligent he is. And any boxing historian says far and away, Tyson is not the greatest living boxing historian. He's the greatest ever. And it's interesting because, again, you apply – you know, my, my father was bored to death in law school because he just said, I'm just assimilating a bunch of information that no way prepares me to be a lawyer. This is like, who would be enthused by this? Yeah. You talk about how the, 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 the uh, cost um, of the abuse Tyson faced uh, and how it probably shifted things irrevocably for him. Yes. And then on the other hand, you talk about in your work, sacrifices that certain people make for other people and the nobility of that. Yeah. And, and that feels to me thematic 
for you. So why? Because I, I think I, I think that the artists that have most pulled us in, I mean, I've, I think Cuba for me was really interesting because it seemed like there was a great symmetry between Teofilo Stevenson, the great Cuban champion, the second most famous person after Fidel Castro, and Vincent van Gogh. Well, Vincent van Gogh is the most beloved artist in the world, yet he's crazy, right? He's the definition of a crazy artist. If you ask a kid who's a crazy painter, they'll say van Gogh. He cut off his ear and, and that sort of thing. But the other thing is that he kept doing what he was doing, even though he couldn't sell well, it. Well, in the book, you say he wanted to sell his paintings. He tried. Unlike he Teofilo Stevenson, who who I share a fascination with. I remember the, with his glove, you know, I remember the point gloves and everything, the way he would, yeah. the question of him fighting Ali. He didn't chase the money at all. No, he turned it down and, and he told me, drunk out of his head and forcing me to drink while I was with him, and I don't drink. Uh, he said, there are decisions that we all have to make in our heart and soul that we have to live with. And I'll live with this now and I'll die with it. And he did. I interviewed his daughter. I said, can you imagine the palace I would have had if he took the money to fight Ali? I don't give a shit. I'm proud of who my father was. I'm happy to live in a little apartment in Cancun. I know who my father was. I know who I am. And that impresses me a lot more than some of the boxing clients that I've trained on the Upper East Side. I train under Miro's and I train under Matisse's. And they look like these artists wipe their asses with them. But the, for these people, I spent $500,000 on that painting. But it doesn't mean anything to them. There's an emptiness and a loneliness to, to New York that is heavy. Cuba, there's a sadness, but there's also a joy. And it's not defined by money, which is a funny thing to know that that can exist anywhere. And the chess players, although there's big money for those 30 people or for the top five people, they too are in it for something else, as you're in it for something else. Yeah, I, I don't think, I mean, one of the great lines, Errol Morris is a huge hero of mine. And one of the great points he was making is, I don't subscribe to this idea that you can turn your kids into a prodigy. I don't believe that you can encourage them to become Bobby Fischer if, if you you know want to use your kid as a trophy kid for how brilliant he is with using the vehicle of chess. Bobby Fischer wasn't encouraged to become Bobby Fischer. Bobby Fischer had no choice but to be Bobby Fischer. Kafka had no choice but to become Kafka. And if anything, their parents, the only thing they could have done was try to slow them down a little bit. You couldn't encourage it. And I guess you don't think you have any choice. No, I'm not good at anything else, you know? And, and that, for me, when Mike Tyson said that about fighting, is he said, the big difference between me and everybody else is they can do a lot of other things. I can't. I don't, and, and, and why not? Because they described his style. It's not a style, it's just as if somebody stole something from him. And I went, me too. That's, that's how I'm writing. I'm writing in order to gain access to the things that are, like there's no line for me between personal and professional. What do I write about? I, I, I write pilgrimages to the people that I care the most, most about. And sometimes, you know, so I go to J.D. Salinger's house while he's alive and um, find my way into Mike Tyson's house and, and talk to the people that most inspire me and, and put them into the, the books I do. And, and ideally somebody offers me a little money to, to do it, but I, I, like, I like where commerce and art meet, which is that in essence, like somebody down on Wall Street, if I can make their life a little more interesting or help them say something interesting to their girlfriend or whatever, they'll buy the next thing. And I think there's something fair about that exchange. You can't go too far into the artistic, uh, liberal, <laughs> liberal mindset. I, I, I think there's a certain justice to it, even in a dying craft like publishing, I think there is a certain justice to sort of reaching people. I love that relationship with writing in that the person is not going to read further than their enjoyment. Like once that stops, they stop. You're not there to say, wait, wait, it gets good. It has to continue to be good. And for me with journalism, like the, the artistic part of me, make, make the person flow to the end, but make there be enough questions there that they have to read it over again, if they want, and find something new because I'm a compulsive rewatcher of the movies I love and I'm a compulsive rereader of the books I love. I get more enjoyment from that often than the first experience with something. And I try to do that with this chess thing too, is there's a lot of uh, asymmetry with people and some comparisons to things that took me a while to find. And uh, I've never met people so distant from my understanding as chess players, even though they're playing this silly little game. It just went back to my first introduction of it, which is when you lose at chess, even when you don't understand anything about it, it hurts. 
It hurts. Well, you did a great job of bridging that distance and bridging it for me too. And uh, man, I want you to just keep writing and um, don't don't give in to those uh, suicidal impulses. Call a friend. <laughs> I'll give you my number. Call me. And uh, um, Bryn, Jonathan Butler, thanks for being here. Everybody read his books. They're, they're really great. The new one is spectacular. You can find Bryn on Twitter at I'm pointing at you, Brian. Oh, I'm sorry. Brinicio. B-R-I-N-I-C-I-O. Uh, on Twitter, you can find me at Brian Koppelman. You can write me the moment, bk at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. Bye.